Tyler S. O'Reilly here. Before we start, just wanted to remind everyone of Bizarre Plus, our membership program where you can get extra episodes every week. Just simply go to the link in the show notes. It's Sports Bizarre. This is where the trouble starts. It's like a party switch has flicked off. We're not here for a haircut. The hunt for the weirdest. You're blowing my mind. I can't keep it. You fact check this. There is no logic to any of what's going to happen. Strangest. Wow. This is outrageous. It's not for the ages. Things are just going to get sillier and sillier. No red flags there. Most unbelievable. Volatile. Erratic. Simple. And clinically insane. Stories to ever occur. There's a lot of our stories that start with someone fleeing money lenders. This is not the perfect preparation. In the world of sport. This is the opposite of perfect preparation. <laughs> this is the worst. Sports Bizarre. Yeah, were you saying horse whipped as in who's actually horse whipped? Yeah, uh, he said there's only one thing for it. I ordered hair of the dog. <laughs> a rabble of vagrants, drunkards, ruffian brawlers and gambling desperado. So like the Sports Bizarre audience. <laughs> it's time for the leaders of the hunt. Inept at best and corrupt at worst. <laughs> it's Titus O'Reilly. And Mick Malloy. Welcome to the latest episode of Sports Bazaar. Me, Mick Malloy, joined as always. Titus O'Reilly. Titus, you had a cliffhanger. Well, it wasn't really a cliffhanger. It was the weight of expectation of what was about to begin when yes, we finished last Yes, we were last talking about the, the race from England to Melbourne. As part of a centenary. Centenary celebration for Melbourne. settlement, disregarding 50,000 <laughs> years of, of culture. Yeah, sure. Where we left. The Mollisons, which was the couple, Amy and Jim Mollison, were taking off and Jim yep. famously left the brake on. They tried to Oof. take off time. After he's repeatedly That's told Amy. That's going to be a Amy, quiet trip in the plane. He's to- yeah, he's totally told Amy off several times. Yeah. And he's the one that <laughs> stuffed it up, right? Yeah. So they all start to take off. The race has begun. Yes. In 45 seconds each, they take off 20 planes. And Feels so a bit like off. the wacky races. It's like exactly like the wacky race. It's exactly like this, right? And you've got planes that are the, the DC two and all this yeah. state of the art metal planes in, with air conditioning. Ones, biplanes, you've got biplanes, biplanes. Literally, you don't have a canopy. They're out yeah. in the open, right? Jeez. So you've got every type of plane. One's flying. carrying passengers. Other, yeah, some have got mail. Some have got nothing. Some in guys wearing Spartan. a lion skin jacket. Someone's got the lion skin jacket. <laughs> it's, you, we've got everything, right? Yeah. Five stopovers, mandatory. Mandatory. But you can take as many as you like. Yeah. The yep. Dutch are stopping everywhere. The Dutch are stopping at 22 places. They're so promoting, they're aren't they? So the first news we get, so you've got to remember also, everywhere across the world is listening to this on radio. And so reports are coming in all the time. People, if they know the flight path is going yeah. anywhere near them, are out looking for it. So they're following it in real time in every country, America, Europe, everywhere. Has there been a long-distance race before? Not on this scale. Not this is scale. huge. Yeah. This is like a, the big thing. This is cutting edge. It is At the time, it's the technology is like... So they have nutted it. So it was Melbourne trying to promote itself. Yeah, and they... Uh, and and uh, their previous ideas were a giant cake. Yes. And and, uh, and Captain Cook's parents' villa, <laughs> house the, that used the house. Flying out the house. And what happened is they got lucky in that when they announced the race and because McPherson Robinson put up the huge amount of money, yeah. suddenly you get Boeing, Douglas Airplanes, yeah, you going. get De, De Havila, creates this frenzy between the Americans sure. and the Brits and it just takes on a life of its own. So it's huge. So they take off and you'd remember we had in the Fairy Fox one, the old biplane, we had a guy called Ray Perra who was um, – yeah. 
showed up with boils and other problems yes. in a very dodgy plane. His plane was a shit heap. Yeah, he's terrible. It was an old bike. It was 1920. Jalopy. Yeah. So literally, like, it was an old 1920s biplane. We're in 1934 by this point. So the first news they got is they had landed on the French coast, so they only made it just across the channel. While they were flying across, their plane, which was so bad, kept losing height and alarming rate before they being able to level out, and they ran into all this sort of cloud and can't see. So they're having a nightmare and the engine keeps cutting out and then coming back on. That's and a disastrous start. They thought they were going to die and then they managed to land in France just in a field and they jump out of the cockpit and see that the radiator's leaking and they stood there trying to work out what to do when an official from the nearby village shows up with a bunch of locals all wondering what they're doing there. Yeah, right. And they say we're part of the race. The official was like, didn't care, took a notebook out and asked for their names, their papers, their destination, their reason for landing in the field, taking down in long form all the notes. He then went around and wrote down the serial numbers of every part of the plane. <laughs> and but they what was to, he worried about? He was just overly officious. He thought like this was a plane landing in a field was like the biggest thing to happen. This is uh, before planes flew. You know, yeah. you never heard a plane. Like most of these people had never even seen one flying. So wow. he, he was like, so they're stuck there. And no, they just seen a Citroen. Yeah, that's right. That's <laughs> all they've seen. <laughs> so they're stuck there trying to work out how to get the plane out of the field. All right. Uh, McGregor and Walker, who were the two New Zealanders, Mad McGregor, they were in the open cockpit. And they tried to fly at 10,000 feet, you know. So the nowadays they fly at 40,000 feet, you know, the sure. airliners we're on. They tried to fly at 10,000 feet to get up above the clouds over the English Channel so they could see. Yeah. But it was so cold because they're in an open cockpit. Yeah. But it's not a pressurized cabin. Yeah. And the oxygen is so light up there. A bit hard. By the time they land in Rome, they make it to Rome, they have all these signs of dizziness, nausea, muscle and mental fatigue and crushing headaches because they've been flying Crikey. at too light of air. This is how dangerous it is. Davies and Hill, another two of them, they land in central France and they also, flying over the channel, they were in grey cloud. And you've got to remember, no GPS, no, yeah. you know, th- there's no way of knowing where you are except often from maps and a compass and your eye, right? Yeah. But this is not like now where you put in an autopilot. They got to the point where they were in grey crowd, they couldn't see anything and all their instruments died, altitude, orientation, everything. So they just didn't know whether they were upside, down, whatever. They were all Good Lord. So they land and think we're almost going to die. So this happens. Now Wright, who was the baseball star in Palando, who's the guy who had promised to kiss a policeman as part of a bet with a mate back in New York, <laughs> they arrive in Rome. And it's 4.40 and they decide they're not going to take off till the next morning. Yeah. So that left him plenty of time. So he snuck out, found an unsuspecting member of Rome's police, walked up and planted a kiss on his cheek. Imagine if he'd got the French official in the field. (laughs) Then he went to the nearest telegraph office and wired his friend in the US saying, I've done it. I've done it. Wire me the money. (laughs) Great stuff. Now, while all this is happening and the first planes are starting to land and it tends to be they're landing in France and Italy and these are the smaller planes that have to land for fuel, first. the bigger planes are flying on. They're not stopping. They're flying over straight to the Middle East. Uh, how's this been covered, can I ask? So in each particular town? Or? Every town, every country, the Telegraph and, ra- the and shortwave radio. And some of the planes who have radios on them have got deals with 
various media uh, things to exclusivity to either when they land or when they're in the air, they radio down what's happening where they gotcha. are and everything. And this is the frenzy of media, like there's whole contingents of media just following it. And it's a very everywhere. big story. It's a huge story, right? Number one story. So to give you an idea how big across the Middle East, word comes that the fleet's heading their way and rumour starts that they're all coming from England and are sent by the British government to put down an Indian insurgency. <laughs> so there's panic across the Middle East. And by the way, believable. <laughs> yeah, very believable at the time. This is the 30s. Then the truth comes out that it's part of this race. And so right across the, even the deserts, Middle Eastern tribesmen in the deserts are riding to the top of sand dunes and stuff to try and catch a glimpse of this. And the bazaars and everything are turning out. And so this is spreading like wildfire that the planes are coming. Capture the imagination of every nation. Every airport, not just the official ones, wherever a plane lands, there's like like tens of thousands of people, not like five people, like tens of thousands of people. It's huge, right? And so at Aleppo and Baghdad, you cannot get in there because the the crowds surrounding it are so big yeah. that people can't even get there just in the hope of glimpsing this. So the Mollisons, the couple, they are the first and they make a nonstop flight from England to Baghdad. So they land in Baghdad and they were feeling very confident because they'd done they were the only team to do it without stopping. And so they they were there well first. They land and they say has anyone else landed yet? And they, because they don't know. Yeah. There's no real time GPS or radio updates for most yes. people and stuff. So they're clueless as to everyone else where everyone else is. So they land and they say, Are we the first? And they say, You are. Yeah. They then are forced to stay for an hour and 40 minutes. They really could have just refueled and took off straight again. But they get told that the King Ghazi and the Prime Minister and half the Iraqi cabinet are waiting to congratulate oh, Jim comes. and Amy Mollison. You gotta wait. And so they say, We'd love to meet you. So she has to do all the glad handling. And she being a female pilot. I was gonna say, women flying a plane. They're just amazed. Gone. I mean, oh. they're amazed, right? The Saudis don't let women drive <laughs> now. <laughs> so back then, this the Iraqis were like, they were really excited to meet her. And then the crowd said, We want you to speak to the crowd. So she had to get up and do a speech to the whole crowd wow. about it so all. she's got a speaking engagement. Yeah. So they're getting frustrated because they're being delayed because of this, but they just feel like they sort of have to yeah. because you need the grounds crew to refill. And so a lot of these countries are doing this. To, they're in on the race and helping the race happen. So you have to be. Yeah, all the visa clearances and for the, the all this diplomacy so, so has been worked, has out, been in worked out in advance to let people do this because you can't just normally just fly in and land in these countries. Yeah. So they all feel vested. So if people are being nice to you, you have to stay and chat to them, right? You know, Things can go pear-shaped <laughs> yeah. pretty quickly too. A lot of the other ones are stopping at Rome, Athens and Aleppo. The Dutch in the DC-2, the KLM plane, they managed to arrive in Baghdad in third place. The red comet, the Grosvenor House with Campbell Black and Scott. The, uh, the, the himbos? Yeah, they're the... The guys that one that saw his mistress saw him off from the airport, <laughs> and the other one who rescued the German spy, gotcha. the German ace. Yeah, um, a lot. They land second in Baghdad. They learn that the Mollisons are ahead of them as well, so they're all refueling. It's all going fairly well. The Boeing two four seven flown by Roscoe Turner, who's the Lion guy, yeah. and Clyde Pangborn, upside down <laughs> Pang, is his name. They arrive in <laughs> Rome, and then they manage to get to Baghdad by the end of the first day. They almost crashed the Boeing on landing in Baghdad um, and by complete luck it's okay because a 
gust of wind. Or so they have to make a off. speech too. They're all having to do all the diplomacy. So everywhere they stop. They had a really rough time flying over the Alps. This is uh, Roscoe Turner and, and Pangborn. Pangborn was in the co-pilot seat and he said to Roscoe, our lion friend, he said, there's a dark patch ahead. I'm not sure if it's a cloud or a mountain. Okay. And Turner says, well, I might just get some height just in case it's a mountain. Yeah. They do. And as they go past it, Pangborn turns back and says, no doubt about it. I've never seen trees on a cloud. <laughs> this is how dangerous this is, right? Was These he upside down are... at the time? Yeah. <laughs> So we could see the trees. So they just missed crashing into the European Alps. But by the end of the first 24 hours, the teams are spread out from some are still in stuck in France and others are now nearing northern India by the end of 24 hours. So four, right. they're spread out over 4,000 miles already. Day two, Jim Mollison and Amy Mollison, the married couple, they arrive in Karachi at 4.53 a.m. And they'd set a new England to India record already. So just over 24 hours, they've flown from wow. England to India. They had a bit of a problem. Their Comet, which is the English plane, their undercarriage had failed to retract properly after they took off from Karachi. So they had to fly back to Karachi, get it fixed. That's allowed, is it? You're allowed to go back and get repairs and everything because it slows you down. So it's no, it's a penalty to you. Not it's a self-imposed penalty. Yeah, so they, so they have to get that fixed. They then take off from Karachi again. And this time they realised they'd left maps behind. So they have to Idiots. go back and land again. And then now the airport, Karachi airport's in thick fog and they can't take off. So they've just wasted this is a, a couple debacle. of hours. Yeah. They're furious and they're sitting there waiting for the fog to clear. Finally it lifts after a few hours and they take off, but the tensions are high in the cabin. <laughs> So if everyone knows, I know, knows, the, vibe. I know yeah, the feeling. Yeah. The long road trip where you neither of you talking, they're in that face, right? Okay. You can imagine what that's like. So sun sets behind them now, and they're in this flying at night. And this is in the day where, yeah, you know, like I said, no GPS or anything. It's scary flying at night. You, they fly mainly by they use the compass, but they mainly look at the ground to see landmarks and follow railways and things <laughs> like that. It's like that's how they flew in these days. So they're looking and they can't see anything. Amy is in the co-pilot. Um, Jim is flying. Amy's looking at the map with a yep. flashlight and she's got the compass out and she's doing calculations. And she says to Jim, I think we're lost. So this is literally like a couple arguing over directions. <laughs> Jim says, I don't think we are lost. She says, well, I've got the map and the compass. Why and don't we stop and ask somebody? <laughs> it was, we're not stopping. It was we're literally, not stopping. So it they was, start asking. We go through to the next town. They start arguing. She says, every minute we fly this direction, I think we're going off course. He says, it's fine. Okay. Can but, I just say, he's hasn't had a great run. He hasn't had a great run I'll yet. be on her side, I reckon, if she... Yeah. yeah. He eventually starts to fall asleep. Okay. He begrudgingly says, okay, you can fly for a bit. She's thrilled. He falls asleep. She's relieved that she's now in control. She looks at her calculations and decides to adjust the course. Oh, boy. And then eventually as daylight starts to come she finds a flat field a large flat field near a village and she brings the plane down with a very skillful landing and finds they get out and they talk to the locals and they've landed in Jabalpur in india and the villagers are just can't believe this machine's oh, come down it's from, like a ufo yeah because this is like the middle of nowhere and all across europe and america two planes are rare so you yeah. know and in india this was really rare 
And she explains to them that they were on their way to Alabad, but they needed fuel. They were running very low on fuel because they had been going the wrong way. The crowd points to the local bus depot, which has fuel, but it's an inferior grade. It's not made for planes, but it will do. So they um, <laughs> put it all in and they're not far from Alabad. So they accept the offer of the fuel and they take off. Jim decides to fly the next bit. Jim's causing a lot of trouble. Jim's had a shocker. So Jim's far. had a shocker. Jim decides that the best thing so they don't get lost again is to do something called hedge hopping. And this is when you fly really close to the ground, so low that if there's a hedge, you have to fly up, right? It's yeah. You don't get lost and you can follow roads and things, but it's yeah. quite dangerous. This was a very sparsely populated region. So they could sort of do this, but Amy says, why are you doing this? We don't need to hedge hop. There's no reason for doing yeah. what you're doing. We know how close we are now and we know where we're going and it's daylight. Just go up higher. Let's just get there. He refuses and she says, but this is stupid because we're not on good fuel and what you're doing is putting enormous strain on the engine. If you go up high, you burn less fuel and it's smoother for the engine, sure, right? There's more air. So she says, go up higher, don't do this. And he says, no. Um, <laughs> they have a big argument about it. She says, we need to consume fuel and you're damaging the engines doing this. It's overtaxing them. And still he doesn't listen. So finally they land in Alabad. Instead of being excited, they realize straight away there's a problem with their plane and the mechanics open the engine and say six pistons and six cylinder heads are burnt out because someone was flying the plane very poorly. <laughs> So Jim, he loses it at the mechanic who tells them this, yeah. cracks it. Amy is furious. They aren't talking to each other yeah. at this point. And then he swims up. Now, a, a GM Randall, who is an aircraft inspector for the air ministry in India, and he's the Alabad race controller, he inspects Black Magic after the fighting couple have left the plane. And he finds several empty bottles of whiskey stuffed down the side of Jim's seat. Oh, Jim. And Amy and Jim are out of the race. <laughs> For that reason? The engine's broken. Well, the engine's he's, broken. He's broken he's, the engine and they're not talking. He's tried to break Booney's record yeah. while flying. So he's, the very first, so they he set the, the very first Booney's record. Exactly. But this is also like, you know, this is a massive race and here are this married couple. It's like having a fight in the car. It's hilarious. Grosvenor House, uh, the, the comet. That they're the first one out. Yeah, the Campbell Black and Charles Scott managed to fly from Baghdad to Alabad and suddenly they're in the lead because the Mollisons have pulled yeah. out. Now, interestingly, they hated Jim Mollison, so they were thrilled <laughs> when they heard he was out. And then they push on to Singapore. So by, by the end of the second right. day, they've made it all the way to Singapore. This is world record time. Because usually time. it's 10 days. They're already in Singapore. The KLM crew from the Dutch, they uh, land in Persia, they, as it was called. They're now Iran. They land in Karachi before they land in Alabad, and they are now second, even though they are dropping mail off and carrying passengers. <laughs> Doing a milk run. But the difference is in the DC-2, their plane's called the Iva, which is Dutch for stork. They're air-conditioned. They've got a shower. They've got a toilet. They've got drink service. So the passengers, so while the others are all in biplanes and the Comet's this small racing plane, they're coming second but doing it in absolute luxury. This is great. Which is also to prove the point. KLM want to prove this is a future of air travel. We are the cutting edge. They actually forget a passenger at Alabama and have to go back and get them. (laughs) (laughs) That's their only mistake they basically make on this. How do you leave a passenger? Yeah. There's only three. 
The Boeing 247 with our line guy, Colonel Roscoe Turner and upside down Pang, um, they were considered missing. No one could make radio contact and suddenly it showed up at Alabad and everyone was very relieved. They're in number three. Um, so it's all going quite well for them. I haven't mentioned all the teams because some of them are sure. like, they're not that excited. They, they are starting to drop off in terms of mechanical problems. Gotcha. At the same time, the Mollisons are announcing they're pulling out of the race. Mm. A farmer in an Italian village of Palazzo San Giovizzo, he looks up and sees a small plane falling silently from the sky as if it's just plummeting from the clouds. And it plummets from about 5,000 feet, 1,500 metres. And he's watching it fall, waiting for it to level out. Instead, it doesn't with the engines making no sound. It's completely silent. And it falls and explodes in a spectacular fireball. And so hot, it takes me out a while to work out what the plane was. But it was Gilman and Flight Lieutenant James Keith Baines flying that terrible biplane, the Fairy Fox One. Oh, the one they said was unlikely to even start. They'd been frustrated with the mechanical points and both of them uh, died in that thing. Now, the Australian team of, uh, remember, Ray Parra and Hemsworth are also flying a Fairy Fox yeah. One. They hear about these deaths and, and are a bit, bit nervous. So already two lives have been lost. I'd be driving that thing down the highway. Yeah, you would just stop it straight away. So two people have died. I wouldn't even hedgehop in one of those. Exactly. I'd be very low. Exactly. So this just shows you the complete danger of this thing. Uh, Scott and Campbell Black are in Singapore. They take off and they are terrified because they have to fly over the Timor Sea. And aviators at this time, there is a myth or a rumour that the Timor Sea and I read lots of recounts yes. of this in the research. They all believe 100% of the time that he's full of sharks. Like if you crash, you'll just if get you crash, a shark. You're, with you're basically land on a shark is how they say it. <laughs> but they all believe it and they are terrified. So they take off from Singapore and they're in first place and suddenly their oil circulating system starts to give them trouble and a motor doesn't work because they're above the Timor Sea Uh-oh. flying to Darwin and they have to cut out one of their engines. So they're on one engine and they're having to pair it back and they're not flying at full power. Chris Charles Scott says, another mishap would have meant disaster and Black and I prepared our life belts. The only compensating factor of the mode trouble was that it cut the petrol consumption rate by half because they only had one engine. Um, but the bad weather starts to hit them and they start to think we're going to die here over the Timor yeah. Sea. They decide they can either fly straight to Darwin on one engine or they can follow a chain of islands, which is much longer, but they think at least if we go down we might... So they decide to fly that way, but it's very tense. They finally see the lights of the Darwin Aerodrome up ahead. They said they'd never felt so relieved to see something. So big is the crowd that they almost injure the pilots and damage the plane as they gather around it when they land. They inspect the engine. They find a few problems with it. They fix it. And the Grosvenor House, their plane is off to Charleville in Queensland. And at the same time, the Uber, the KLM Dutch team, they land in Darwin just about the time that Grosvenor House plane is landing in Charville. Um, so they're right on their heels, the KLM team. Right? Yeah. Finally, though, Grosvenor House, the Comet, manages to arrive in Melbourne and win the race. It's witnessed by a crowd of 40,000 at Flemington Racecourse. It has to fly over Flemington Racecourse and then it goes and lands at Laverton Air Base, which is a military yeah. base at the time. This is a huge thing. The Argus newspaper writes, in what surely must be one of the most thrilling moments in Victoria's history of 100 years and in the whole history of Australia, (laughs) Scott with his co-pilot, Captain Black, 
in a Comet monoplane won the centenary air race from England to Melbourne yesterday. Everyone is thrilled because it's an English plane, an English pilot, because Australia sees itself still at this point as part of England. They'd taken two days and 23 hours to cover it. The previous record was just over eight days. Scott lodged the logbook and said, it's been a lousy trip and that's praising it. Neither of us got a wink of sleep on that trip. We had to be on the job at all times. He said his immediate plan was to have a bath and get some sleep. Campbell Black stood up to give a speech to the crowd and said, I have never made a speech. All I can say is thank you. And then that was it. That was the whole thing. (laughs) Right behind them, and they know they're coming second, and they don't know, though, that the Grosvenor House plane has finished at this stage, and they know it's got mechanical problem, is the Dutch in the Uber. They're in hot pursuit and they think there's a chance we could beat them if they have mechanical issues. But as they're flying south, they're hit by an enormous electrical storm and it's one of the worst in memory. This is a time in Melbourne in late October and early November in 1934, killer storms and floods swept Melbourne killing 30 people. So they run into this amazing electrical. So they're in the DC too. It affects all their equipment. The radio becomes static, doesn't work. Mm -hmm. They can't see out the window because it's so dark and they're in the middle of clouds, lightning everywhere, electrical interference. That's a lot of fun. They go high, uh, try and go high above above the the cloud and ice forms on the wings and they start to not be able to do it. They have to go back down into the storm. They then go try and go below the storm and they realise that they're above the Great Dividing Range and the New South Wales Alps there, feather top and all that. So they suddenly go, we better go back up into the cloud. So they're in the cloud and they don't know if they're going in the right direction and they don't know where they are. And they think we're in serious trouble and they're completely missing. No one can make radio contact. No one can see them. The race organisers realise they must be in the storm and they must be in trouble. Okay. No one knows exactly where they are. They're trying to contact them by radio. Occasionally they just hear like half a word. It's not. A, it's just snippets but they can't understand it. They put out an emergency thing to all the radio stations in New South Wales and Victoria. You know what they need? A bit of Dutch courage. Hey. <laughs> so they put out the word to all the radio stations, <laughs> can you please put out a call to all the listeners out there, if you hear a plane overhead, because this is a time where there's no planes flying, yeah. it's not, there's not commercial yeah, flights. you'll know. You'll know it's them. If you hear them, can you let us know? This is relayed in real time to the whole world. So the whole world is tuning in and listening and knows that this plane is missing and is in a storm and the whole world drops everything and tunes in. In the Netherlands, the family had been at the KLM headquarters expecting to listen to them landing in Melbourne. Suddenly here, the family of the pilots here, they're missing and in this storm we don't know where they are. A huge crowd gathers out KLM's headquarters. So people are gathering around around the world in real time hoping this is going to land. In Albury, which is 162 miles or about 300 and something, 400 kilometres north of Melbourne, they're all awake up there listening to the radio and the storm's passed and they're all listening for the plane because they know they could be somewhere near them. A guy called Arthur Newman is the manager of the local ABC radio station and he hears the drone of an engine and he thinks, I can hear the plane. And he knew there was no time to waste. They knew they were very low on petrol and everything up there. So he jumps down to the radio station and 
he does something which he can be instantly dismissed from the ABC, which is the national broadcaster for those overseas. If he does this, he cuts into the broadcast because it's simulcast from yes. Melbourne at this stage. He cuts in risking his job and without any authority and barely knowing how to do it all, he flips the switches and he goes live and he says to the citizens of Albury, the Dutch plane is flying above us or near us and we can save it. Anyone with a car or a truck, drive to the race course. Um, he says what we need you to do is line up along the race course like it's an airfield yes. and turn your lights on. 80 motorists, as he's talk, saying this on the air, he can hear cars starting up across up, the yep. town. So about 80 motorists all go down and set up to do it. But the Dutch can't see this at this point. Another guy, Clifton Mott, who's the sub-editor of the local newspaper, The Border Mail, he rings the air race officials and say, I think we can hear the plane. And so he is on the phone to the race headquarters. He goes out there and goes to the top of Memorial Hill and waves a single light in the darkness trying to attract the plane's attention. It's not really working though, it's one tiny light. Jim Dowling who is an engineer, meets at the postman Reg Turner and they go with another guy, Lyle Ferris, who's the municipal electrical engineer. They have this idea. They drive to the local power substation. Right. And they come up with this plan. Lyle Ferris, who's the engineer, reckons he can do it. So Ferris opens the local electrical substation and identifies the levers that control the power to the entire town. Yep. And over the radio, they say to everyone, turn on all the lights in the town. So they turn on all the lights in Albury. Wow you know, this big country town. While they're there, they stand listening to see if they can hear the plane. And when they hear it and they judge the planes over the town, they cut the electricity and then they turn it back on and then they turn it off. So they are blinking the entire town's electricity to wow. signal to the plane. They wait to see if they get the pilot Parmentier's attention and they keep flicking it and eventually they notice that the plane seems to have noticed these lights flicking on and on starts to circle the town. And so Reg Turner steps forward and he'd been a signal corpse in World War II and knows Morse code. So he steps up and under his control they flash out the letters A-L-B-U-R-Y, Albury. Yeah. So suddenly Parmentia realises where they are and he realises what they're doing. So he circles around to see what they've got on offer and... Um, realizes that here's this racetrack it's yeah. very small it's not probably big enough to land on he also notices he can see the cars lined up but he realizes he has to thread the needle of two yeah. hills and trees is the only way he can approach it it's very dangerous and in the albury radio station a communications started up between the phone telephone exchange goes back to the people in melbourne which then goes to 3AR, the radio station in Melbourne, which mm. then broadcasts to the entire world. So the whole world is following the landing yeah. in real time. The aircraft circles the race course twice. It drops flares on parachutes to sort of light it up and get a better view. And he realises he's going to have to do it because they're running out of fuel. And so he threads the needle and manages to land the plane and straight away it sticks fat in the mud on the racetrack and so that's partly what pulls it up and manages right. to land. So the people of Albury have saved them and it, the whole world just The whole world is people be like, running in the it. streets yeah. and going, well. They get out and they the whole town sings for they are jolly good fellows to them. In KLM offices there's celebrations and across 
Holland, the place goes nuts. It's like they've won yeah, a yeah. huge thing. The next morning, they all come out and the plane is stuck in the mud. So they decide we need to get get them out. So 300 people show up to help. Someone drives a tractor onto the track and they <laughs> put planks under the plane's wheel. Uh, they can't get it to work. Finally, it's agreed. They get two ropes and they get 80 men on each rope and they yank it out of the mud and they let them uh, get onto the proper racetrack bit. Captain Parmentier is reluctant to take off because it's muddy in a racetrack. So he leaves two of his crew members and the passengers behind manages to take off and they arrive second overall despite all there this on handicap and they are absolutely fated. The Dutch declare it when they come second and they're first in the handicap, a national holiday and close the stock exchange. That's how big <laughs> it was over there. Third comes in Colonel Roscoe Turner and Clyde Pangborn, upside down Pang and the Lion Tamer <laughs> in their Boeing 247D. So they cross yeah. three hours after. So this is a huge reception Amazing. as held in Melbourne. Sir McPherson Robertson, who paid, is not invited to the civic reception because Why? he's seen as a self-made man and not part of the Oh, elite. wow. That is shit. So they snub him. He's underwritten the whole thing. Underwritten the whole thing. And, um, oh, you, this is what I hate about people and, and people people in general. People in general. You dicks. Yeah. Way to kill the whole thing. Yeah. So the top three have finished and the records are set. The US team of Wright, who was the baseball star, and Palando, the policeman kissing Palando, yes. they have a few problems and they're forced to down their plane in the Persian town of Jask and um, they're not sure what to do. Palando volunteers to work to town for assistance and Wright says, well, I'll remain with the plane. And then as Palando, our policeman kissing friend, the locals come up to him on horseback with rifles and fixed bayonets. They don't know who he is and they lock him in a roofless enclosure overnight without food and water and he doesn't know if they're going to shoot him or what's happened to okay. Wright. Wright's a bit lucky. A British oil company man has seen the plane come down and ridden out and escorts him back to the company compound to spend the night there and they finally manage to get Palando released from the tribesmen. <laughs> um, Someone's they have get to get kissed. They have to withdraw. So they're out of the race. Jimmy Melrose, the young 21-year-old Australian who flies solo, he goes missing and no one knows where he is over the Timor Sea and he's late for arriving in Darwin and everyone thinks they're about to lose. The worst. The worst. He suddenly appears and as he's circling Darwin, his engine cuts out, he's run out of fuel, so he has to glide the plane in, which everyone is amazed at. But he finally then pulls up and manages to fly to Melbourne and he finishes second on handicap even though he's flying by himself the yeah. whole way. It's a good effort. World War One ace Mad Mac McGregor and his co-pilot Henry Walker finish in their single-engine plane. Remember, they had no – there was an open cabin. They were fifth overall. They go home to a hero's welcome. The highly respected general aviation says that in terms of all the flying, theirs is the most amazing one in the plane they've done it in. The Danes, Hansen and Jensen, they close in. They are flying along. They can't find the railway line that leads down to Melbourne, so they're lost in New South Wales. And they finally see a village, so they land and they go knocking on the doors and it's a ghost town. No one's there. Right. And then they hear hoofbeats and two riders come out of it and the man introduces himself as Mr Henry, the inspector of the sheep station on which they've landed. And his companion is Miss Watts, the daughter of the station owner. 
and they had seen the plane come down and said these houses are just empty buildings used during shearing season and no one's there at the moment. Mr. Henry then rips out a piece of paper from his diary, writes a message to his brother and says, my brother lives in Melbourne, can you give this to him? (laughs) They go, I don't know if we could really find someone in Melbourne, you know. But anyway, they take off, they land in Melbourne and they've got a welcome committee that greets them and Mr. Henry's brother is part of the group. And he's stunned when he hands him a note by complete thing. She's delivering mail too. Yeah. Harold Brooke and Ella Lay. Now, Ella Lay was the knitting lady. Was she knocked up? Well, she needed like about five jumpers because they take so long. They get held up for a long time, long delays. It takes them. They don't land until a month after the first planes have landed. Oh. So this is how long it takes. They did not get along in the plane the whole way either. The minute (laughs) the plane lands, her family rocks up takes her and he is left standing there by himself and there's no one there to greet him because it's a month after that yeah, other sure. planes have landed. There's no welcome committee. We're over no it one. now. So he's landed and no one is there to meet him. He is a bit uh, like standing there going, well, I did all of that for this race. He's literally standing alone on the tarmac with no one there. Finally, someone at the aerodrome calls McPherson Robertson and says one of your flyers has landed. So he sends instructions for Brooke to go to the Alexander Hotel and he goes and meets him and has dinner with him and puts him up for the next month in the hotel and pays all his bills. He's the only person that seems to care. Cyril Davies, who was the missionary who ran the homeless shelter, he didn't arrive until the 24th of November. He'd taken a very long time. As he comes into land, three planes fly up to greet him. They've learned from the previous one that they should still (laughs) honour them. And he looks and one of them dips their wings in like honour to him Mm. and he notices it's a young lady, a young woman pilot. They were the second last to finish the course and when they arrived there was not big public ceremonies but they were sort of looked after a bit more. In last place is Ray Perra and Hemsworth who are known as the battlers in that terrible biplane. They were the last to make it. They don't even arrive in the same year. (laughs) As the other finishers. They had taken so long. The very first Jetstar flight. (laughs) (laughs) They had taken so long to get there, stopping everywhere, that they had almost crashed in the Alps at one point. Then when they were trying to land at one point, they realized it was a naval base and they were flying so low over the sea that they almost hit the conning tower of a submarine as it surfaced. Oh, wow. When they did land... They got arrested because people thought they were attacking the submarine. They then took <laughs> off again and landed again in another place and were arrested by Mussolini's troops. Oh, so yeah. this is their second time they were. They, apparently, Para was so charming, he talked his way out of both of those arrests. They landed again at another military aerodrome, almost got arrested. Um, so they were constantly being arrested uh, time and time again. And they finally made it. But while they were flying... I've often been arrested on landing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> usually popped into a wheelchair and met by police. Now, at one point while they're still racing and they're the last to finish, yes. they are flying along at one point and as they were flying, they land in Persia and they have to wait for permission to leave Persia, which now Iran. Iran. And they don't get given it straight away. So they're trying to figure out something to do. And you got to remember, this is months, like about four months after the race is finished. So they decide one day in Persia to go for a bit of a flight, just to keep the plane working and everything. And as they go, they find 
the wreckage of a burnt-out plane landing in a mangled mess of twisted metal on the desert of Persia. And they go down and have a look and fly low, and they realise it's the KLM aircraft, the Uva, the one that finished second, uh. the Dutch one. It had flown back to Amsterdam and resumed its normal commercial routes. Now, none of the pilots that were on it, the one, this is the plane that was in Albury, mm. were on it, but it, it had crashed. So this in a lightning strike. So they see that and it makes them a bit nervous. Okay, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They cross the finish line on 13th of February, 116 days after they leave. Jeez. Arriving at Essendon Airport, Pera notes, we are a bit late. <laughs> the only person that contacts them is McPherson Robertson who asks them to meet him in his office where he presents them with gold medallions and says, I hope this will give you good luck. Great. Now, just in the aftermath, the Melbourne Centenary Air Race Trophy was donated to the Red Cross before World War II and melted down for the war, war effort. Mm-hmm. Jimmy Melrose, the young 21-year-old, he was the last to see Charles Kingford Smith's plane disappear forever into the night when he went missing and died. Jimmy himself began a charter flight uh, business and then once over South Melton in Victoria in turbulent conditions, his plane broke up, killed him just two years after this race. Okay. He dies a young guy. Amy Mollison and Jim Mollison get divorced. Oh, I'm glad in to hear it. 1938. Amy continues to fly when World War II starts, but she's not allowed to fight. She's job is to move planes around RAF bases. She didn't really like that. She wanted to fly, but that she wasn't allowed. But when she was flying one of these in thick fog, she crashed in the Thames estuary and a rescue boat went out to get it and spotted her. But by the time it got there, she'd disappeared below the surface. And that was just a few years after the race. Jim Mollis, this just shows you how dangerous all these guys yeah. were. Jim Mollison flew uh, in World War II as well. And on one point, his plane was badly shot up by the Luftwaffe. When he landed, all he requested was an urgent cup of tea. Um, but we all know he preferred whiskey. Oh, yeah. He's at, not fooling anyone. At the end of the war, he settled in London and took over a pub, which only exacerbated his heavy drinking. So in 953, because of his heavy drinking, the Aviation Medical Board revoked his license to fly. <laughs> and he married again in 1949. That ended in separation, but he, that uh, ex-wife bought him another pub and he died in 954 at age 59. Yep. Jacqueline Cochran, who had married the very rich man, she started a line of cosmetics, Wings to Beauty, and she flew her own aircraft around the country promoting her products. Marilyn Monroe became the face of her lipstick line. She began flying new jet aircraft and became the first woman to go supersonic. And in the 60s, she was part of the Mercury 13 program for the astronauts. Jeffrey Hemsworth, who partnered Raid Parr in the race, he flew seaplanes during the war. His was shot down by the Japanese fleet and he became a prisoner and died as a prisoner of war. Mm-hmm. Ray Perra. He owned and then lost various aviation companies in New Guinea, eventually taking up gold mining. He returned to Australia during World War II to join the RWF, but his health stopped him flying. He got a desk job, which he hated, Yeah, um, and he never really liked it. He ended up uh, living the 72 farming in Queensland. Campbell Black, who won the race, yes, he returned to England and married film star Florence Desmond, who was a very famous woman at the time. They married. He was very happy. But two years after the race, he was taxiing his airplane at Liverpool's airport and an RAF bomber came into land and hit the back of his plane and the propeller sliced through his cockpit and he died in hospital just two years after yep. the race. Charles Scott, his partner, he was a very 
good aviator, but not so good on matters of the heart. He married three times, divorced twice. His first wife was an Australian who divorced him on the grounds of infidelity. The second Australian who divorced him claiming his drinking habits were intolerable. He was married to a third wife when he fell in love with a Canadian woman who refused to leave her husband for him. When she refused to leave, he shot himself in the chest at 43. This is not a happily ever after story, is it? <laughs> They're all dead within two or three years. Ella Lay, the knitter, she stayed in Melbourne, took up nursing and in 1941 enlisted in the Australian Army Nursing Service. She died in 2005, aged 99. The Times right, printed her obituary. Finally. Uh, Kone Parmentier, who flew the Dutch KLM plane in Albury, he returned to Amsterdam a hero. Enormous grandstands were set up. It was like hundreds of thousands of people came out to see him. There was memorabilia everywhere in, sure. in that. He flew as a highly regarded commercial pilot for KLM. And then at the outbreak of World War II, the Germans blew up a lot of the airport in Amsterdam. But while they were under occupation, he managed to fly a plane out of the airport under the Germans' nose. Wow and get it away. He flew it to London and with five other KOL planes, they set up an airline which became British Airways. So he was an amazing guy. He then during the war flew all sorts of difficult missions for the British, flying things around. He was awarded every medal you can imagine. He returned to KLM after the war, but in 1948 he failed to see a high-tension cable ahead and flew into it, killing himself. He was just 44. Albury's role in the rescue of the Uber was a huge boost to Albury. The town had been in dire straits because of the depression and it got a huge outpouring of goodwill from Dutch. They sent all these messages of thanks and donated a lot of money to the Albury Hotel. They awarded the mayor a Dutch title. They visited Albury, the Dutch a delegation, and came out and donated even more money. And they still have a huge Dutch community of people who moved yeah. to Albury after that. Okay. Owen Cathcart-Jones lived a long life, one that did, but he was all over the shop. He had liaisons with numerous married women and various court proceedings. Um, He kept having to escape various places such as Czechoslovakia and Argentina because of his various (laughs) problems. Uh, He ended up in London. Then he ended up in Canada during the war as a squadron leader. He had to be retired because he kept going missing again. During the times after the war, he and Errol Flynn, the film star and a woman, were involved in a thruple. Yes. And he eventually settled in California where he wrangled polo ponies and died at 58. Roscoe Turner, the lion guy, he returned a hero's welcome, had a long life as a pilot, died quite famously at the age of 74. Sir McPherson, Robertson McPherson, he lived a quiet life after this. He donated a lot of his money. Um, he was hugely popular, even though he snubbed in Australia. He was hugely yeah. popular when he went to London. He died at 86, left behind a huge fortune, and his company was purchased by Cadbury after his death. Mm-hmm. Cyril's Davies, who was the second to land, and remember the woman dipped her wings to him? Yes. He landed and pursued that woman, and they got married and had four children. And the worst thing he said of it all is, we were very happily married except all my children barracked for Australia in the cricket and the rugby and that drove him <laughs> mad. The air industry of the 20 planes that took up 12 landed and it began the new era of air aviation. It completely changed the way people saw planes yes. and saw flying. It proved that the Americans were better. The Douglas DC-3 came along next and took over 
the entire thing. But it also showed that before the race, they'd been planning a mail service that would take four weeks to deliver mail. And suddenly they realized, well, that's not ambitious enough. That's ridiculous. It changed absolutely everything. Mm. One ironic thing is Melbourne produced this because it meant that cargo and passengers moved from boats onto planes. It made Sydney become a bigger city than Melbourne because Melbourne was better for boats, but Sydney was a bit closer for planes. (laughs) But in 1889, in Milestones in Aviation, written by the Smithsonian Institute, they described this race as a unique air race considered the greatest single sporting event in the history of aviation. One British journalist reflected on the day after the race was won, the manner in which scientific progress in annihilating distance takes one's breath away. The McRobertson Trophy Race challenges us to adjust our ideas of time and space. Australia is almost next door. That's incredible. And I did not know that and I live in this city. So that is a fantastic story. Again, would make another great movie. Would it not? (laughs) Uh, Thomas O'Reilly, thank you again. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for listening to another episode of Sports Bazaar. If you'd like more Sports Bazaar, join our membership program, Bazaar Plus. And one of the key bits that people are loving is you get an extra episode every week. Here's a short outtake from our bonus episode. My picture is in the portrait gallery. Up in Canberra. Yes, it is. Not always because it's a photo, so it's not part of the permanent exhibition, but it's... Whenever they want to get the ladies in, (laughs) up it goes. It comes out occasionally. I was touring there with Jeff Stilson and Glenn Robbins, and I didn't tell them. I go, guys, we've got half a day off. You know what would be great? Let's go to the portrait gallery. (laughs) It's famous. And you know what? It's just iconic Australian figures, important figures. Yeah. And it's got them. It'll be fun to walk around and see. Who we canonise in this country, yeah. who we love. And they go, oh, this would be great. So not knowing this one of me, so we're going through and then you know, we're looking at <laughs> Barry Humphreys and all these great authors from yeah, yesteryear yeah. And, and, and all these <laughs> they, they can see it coming up and you can just see their shoulders slump as they realise they'd been played like a harp. <laughs> They're like, we did, we did all of this. For you to just have a laugh, to, to have at a us. laugh at us. <laughs> we could have been doing anything. We could have slept in today, but I hope you're enjoying yourself. The photo was me in a pub with a beer. Oh, right. what a surprise! It was taken without my consent. <laughs> it was like a paparazzi shot. If you enjoyed that, simply go to the link in the show notes to sign up to become a member. <laughs>